0: As we do, let's begin in silence, please. Do what it's required for you to be here. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding, and may grace be at our ends and at our departing. And um, because I was not watching the word limit on what I wrote this week, we might go a little long, but I'm going to rush out right after this because I'm going over. Anyway, no matter who you are or where you are in your spiritual journey, you're celebrated here. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, the Suzanne Stabil event has sold out. So uh, if you got tickets, uh, we will see you here next Saturday. If you uh, registered online, you will be sent a link uh, on Saturday morning so that you can watch. And I'm really, really, really looking forward to this event. And next Sunday, Suzanne will be... Uh, preaching the 830 service teaching here and preaching the 11 o'clock service so she's got a full schedule yeah well we do it I was there here go back I didn't preach there today so um, okay let's begin I have a a title for today's talk, which will become apparent as we go along how it fits, but the title of the talk is, Metaphor Be With You. (laughs) You know, different cultures um, and various religions that have come from those cultures, as far back as historical records that we have go, have focused on um, respect and reverence for the dead how bodies are disposed of and various theories about the afterlife. Um, Probably the most ancient actual records that we have go back to ancient Egypt, Egypt, and uh, there they refer to the afterlife as the field of reeds, not the field of greens, but the field of reeds. And um, it's a land... Uh, just like this, except when you go there, you get to do everything you do here. You get to enjoy everything you do here, except there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no death, there's no disappointment. So that was their understanding of the afterlife, and and they would draw that in various places. The belief was in that culture that uh, when you died, you might, on the other side, not remember much. And so they would, point, they would paint various things and put hieroglyphics on the side of tombs so that people, when they woke up, they would remember what they were in, the, in this life and also what the afterlife would be like. Um, a, a, a tomb uh, inscription that I found that dates from 1400 B.C which is a long time ago, is translated, May I walk every day unceasingly on the banks of my water. May my soul rest on the branches of the trees which I have planted. May I refresh myself in the shadow of my sycamore. Now, you didn't just automatically go to the field of reeds. You had to pass a test. Actually, you had to pass a judgment um, and appear before Orcysus, who was the Lord of the Underworld and the Judge of the Dead. And you went to this place called the Hall of Truth after you died. And in the Hall of Truth, you would appear before a tribunal. And the first person in the tribunal would cut your open, cut your chest open. Now, there's no pain. There's no blood because you're dead. The second person would reach into your chest and remove your heart, hand it to the third person who would put your heart on a balance beam scale. Okay? If your heart was heavy, with thunk like that, you were sent back to light source. You just didn't exist in any form anymore. If your heart was kind of in the middle, close, but no cigar, you had to come back here and do it again. And you might appear as a human, and you might not. Depends. The Buddhists developed a whole theory about that part. If your heart was light, then you got to go on to the next level of existence. Uh, which was an honored afterlife, the field of reeds in the Egyptian uh, belief about the afterworld. And, of course, again, both the Hindus and the Buddhists developed very sophisticated ways of thinking about the afterlife. And then the Jews did, and Christians took over after that and developed that. So on one side of this balance beam scale, they put your heart. And on the other side of the balance beam, they put... A bird's feather and this is where we get the phrase having a heart as light as a feather now this is all written up in the and eventually in the Egyptian book of the dead which is not to be confused with the Tibetan book of living and dying which is popular back back in the 80s or early 80s it's a, huh So anyway, the way that you get a heart as light as a feather is by practicing gratitude. That was very key in Egyptian life and culture was practicing gratitude. There was a time when one guy showed up before the tribunal who was unlike anyone they had ever encountered. He was what we might call a good old boy. A Bubba? Everybody knows a Bubba, kind of like a Forrest Gump kind of character. Somebody who appears stupid, but in the final analysis can be really very clever. And they didn't have the heart, pardon the pun, to take his heart out, to give him a test. But they they, they, they didn't know what to do with him. So they, they, they gave Bubba a test that was not impossible to pass, but was not easy either. They were going to put three questions to Bubba. And um, they gave him these three questions and then sent him away. They, they said, Bubba, what are the two days of the week that start with T? How many seconds are there in a year? And what is God's first name? <laughs> so um, <clears throat> the next day Bubba shows up for his test before the tribunal. And they asked him how many days of the week start with the letter T? And he said Two. And they said, great, Bubba, you got it. Just to be sure, they wanted to know what they were. And he said, they are today and tomorrow. (laughs) And they said, well, Bubba, that's correct, but it's not quite what we had in mind. But okay. Um, How about the second question? How many seconds are there in a year? And Bubba said, well, I had to thunk and thunk about that one because that was really hard, but I finally figured it out. There are 12 seconds in a year. And the tribunal said, Twelve. Bubba, how in the world did you come up with twelve seconds in a year? And he said, Well there's January the second, February the second, wow. March the second. They said that that's all right, we get it. That's, that's all right. But what about the last last question? What is God's first name? He said, Well it's easy, everybody knows that. It's Howard <laughs> and then, Last guy in the tribunal said, Howard, how in the world could you come up with that? And he said, well, It was right there in the prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, Howard it be thy name. <laughs> so forgive me for repeating this, but when I'm doing this rift on the Lord's Prayer, and when we say the Lord's Prayer in our worship services, that prayer is not in the Bible. I just want you to be clear about that. That's from liturgy that dates somewhere around the 13th century, but it's not from, that prayer is not in our Bible. We have a very short form of the Lord's Prayer in Luke. We have another form that is in Matthew, and both of them contain the phrase, who hallowed be our name, in some form or another. Now, we don't know what that translation of that truly is. So in Luke, the prayer begins, uh, he said to them, when you pray, you should say, Father, your name be revered. And in Matthew, it reads, you should pray like this, our Father in the heavens, your name be revered. Now, I hope I can teach this in a way that shows what a genius, non-dual, Zen-like teaching this is. Among the Jewish people, the the name of God was sacred. It was not to be pronounced. In, In fact, there is a story that comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls community where someone accidentally pronounced the name of God and they got excommunicated from the community. And yet, Jesus is instructed. He's a Jew. Jews don't say the name of God. And yet, Jesus... Is clear, he instructed his disciples to um, regard God's name as sacred and then call God Daddy. Somewhere in my studies, I encountered an Italian pro- proverb that says, um, "All trans; it translates to translate is to betray. All translations are miss." translations because um, all translations are interpretations so the Jews would not pronounce the name of God we only have two or three words in the Aramaic language that Jesus spoke preserved for us in the Christian scripture this is one of them Abba there's one word from the cross that is given in the in the English scripture there is Uh, What he called a little girl when he restored her to life in one of the one of the resurrection stories so um, all Translations are mistranslations. Let me get that Um, It's not something that's deliberate It's just something that results from the inevitable fact that words and grammar do not have the exact correspondence from one language to another so, any translation we have is always an interpretation. So. Further language shifts over time, and language and the words that make up the language change. That's why we have different translations of the scripture. At one time, before we moved, and I got rid of a lot of books, I had 26 different translations of the New Testament. So, I want to underscore two things in this beginning. Jesus used a very common word. If we were to translate Abba into our language, it would be daddy or whatever you called your father. Papa, daddy, whatever. And then at the same time, Jesus stressed the Jewish tradition of revering, which means not saying God's name. This is like that Zen saying of what's the sound of one hand clapping. It's a genius teaching, I think. So here here we see one of the most unique teachings of Jesus. And it is the point where he and his movement begin to diverge from Judaism. And it's a point where I think we badly need to go today in our Christian teaching. Since um, Augustine, St. Augustine, planted the notion of original sin, which means that we're all no damn good, Um, And then there was this guy named Anselm who was born in 1033. And Anselm became the Bishop of Canterbury and he put a spin on Augustine's teaching that I have labeled the most successful piece of bad theology ever written. So Anselm came up with what he called the ontological existence for the existence of God. And when he came up with it, Um, it was a success. I mean, the other people who heard about it, there were no printing presses or anything at the time, but people who got word of Anselm's genius idea just made him a hero. So I'm going to give you Anselm's ontological argument for God. Anselm said that God can be defined as the greatest thing imaginable. That's number one. And then he said, things that really exist by definition are greater than things that can be imagined. You following this? God is greater than that, can you imagine? Things that exist are greater than what you can imagine. Therefore, God must exist because he, always a he, would otherwise not be the greatest thing imaginable. This argument is so circular, you could use it as a hula hoop, right? So, Anselm's most influential work um, was why God became a human and died on the cross. And up until the time of Anselm, the theory of why did Jesus, this really good man, have to get crucified, uh, ignoring the facts of what went on in the Roman Empire, Christian theologians but have had time on their hands, so they had to come up with something. So they came up with this theory that when uh, Eve, it's so always a woman's fault, caused Adam to sin in the Garden of Eden, then all humanity was captured by Satan. And when Jesus died, that was paying a ransom to Satan to get people out of hell. It's called the ransom theory of the atonement. And it was one of the theories, honest to God, I was taught in the seminary. Now, Anselm, being the genius that he was, didn't like that theory. Because Anselm's God, clearly, from that argument I just showed you, was big, real, and powerful. Certainly more powerful than Satan. So God could have just kicked down the door where Satan had everybody held captive and let everybody go free because God was that powerful. So Jesus' death must have been about something else. So Anselm thought and thought, and his idea was that Augustine was right. Everybody was a rotten, no good, low-down, rotten sinner. No good. God simply couldn't overlook the fact that people were no good. So there had to be an incentive for people to choose good over evil. And further, God had to receive some kind of satisfaction. That was the theory. Satisfaction or a, um, payment for um, letting people off the hook. So, only God is great enough to pay this price. So, God entered the world as Jesus. Offered himself up to be killed for you. That's what I was taught when I was good. This, this despicable theory, despicable theory is rooted in feudal society where um, People had to give satisfaction to the Lord of the manner, so to speak. And though we no longer live with this mentality, this is still the most successful piece of bad theology. People will ask this question now. Do you believe Jesus died for your sins? That's what they believe. So, though Jesus told some good stories and did some good stuff, his main purpose, according to this theory, was somehow to fix it so that God was not so angry and upset with us. You know, um, during the time of Jesus, up until leading up until that time when the Roman Empire was becoming the empire that it was, um, and, and we have not been uh, adequately educated about this. I read somewhere this week, I don't know if you read that or not, that men... Did you see this poll that men think about the Roman Empire? Is that true? What? I mean, now? now I don't that did not register with me. I not, I think about the right briefcase to buy, you know. That's, that's right. During that time when Caesar was getting the title for himself of being the Prince of Peace. You know, that's what upset people about Jesus was that he assumed and his disciples gave to him the title that belonged to Caesar. And they said, we don't like that. That's not good. So they killed him anyway. Um, I, I, I just, I just want to be as clear with you as possible that it was not the mission of Jesus to change God's mind about us. It was rather the, Jesus, the mission of Jesus was to change our minds about God, okay? Relate to God intimately, but don't speak God's name. That's a very, very genius piece of teaching. I hope you are aware I love St. Paul's. I love the place. I love the people, I love the tradition, the ritual, the experiences, the opportunities. And further, I hope it's clear that I am committed to working out my own life and living and walking the path that I personally find in the teachings of Jesus. And as you have likely heard me quote before, because I think it is the best non, best book of theology written about non-dual theology I know, a book written by a Roman Catholic nun who converted to Hinduism, Sarah Grant said, It isn't the way because Jesus walked it. Jesus walked it because it's the way. All of that being said, I am convinced that the church, by its unwillingness to change its language, keeps teaching people Anselm's theory of God. God is a bigger-than-life, human-like creature out there somewhere. Our Father, who art... Who says the word art anymore? In heaven. Now, people who are aware that we live in the no longer are not, I believe, truly fed by this language. And I believe, because it's the filter through which I see things, that this is the kind of spiritual hunger that people are crying out for. People want to be fed, but there's not enough nurturing stuff out there readily available for it. Um, When I say our, our spirits need to be fed, let me put that in another language that might make better sense for you. We all need a system of being able to make meaning Out of the experiences of our lives now i am not an expert in all the religions of the world indeed the more i study the christian religion the less i seem to know about it Um, once things that were handed to me about which i was so sure now i'm not so um, much you hear in ordinary life is my attempt to create ways of thinking that will lead to spiritual understandings, and more importantly, here it comes, to daily spiritual practices that will ground us, that will make us stronger in dealing with the way that our world and our society are coming to be. Ways that will make us more compassionate and ways that will make us more competitive. As an example of just learning stuff, just yesterday, I learned that the word compete originally meant to work with. So we need a way of talking about that which cannot be talked about. We need a way of naming that which cannot be named. There is something greater and more important, more nurturing than the religion of our culture, which is consumerism, tells us is important so Jesus he spoke in these very intimate earthy terms about God and about his experience with God in the word that he used Abba and in the stories that he told all the way around and when he said that God is father he was using a metaphor now we use metaphors all the time how are you feeling I'm feeling up. How about you? Well, I'm feeling down today. Now, we don't literally mean we are up or down, but we say those words because when we are vertical, we are alive, alert, awake. And when we are prone, we are sleeping ill or worn out. So when somebody says, how are you feeling? I'm feeling up. That comes. That's a metaphor. I'm down. I'm feeling down. Now, everybody here in this room knows what love is, what love is like. No one would disagree that love does not exist. You love your spouse most of the time. You love your parents, you love your children, you love your pets. But you also know that love is not a thing. You can't say, oh, there's love. But you know it exists. You've experienced it. You have it. And yet, we talk in our language all the time as if love were a thing. I could feel the electricity between us. I'm just crazy about her. Now, we, we take a lot of other words from our physical experiences to explain our emotional states. Take the word, language that we take from the world of food. All right, it's going to take you a while to digest what I'm saying today. All right? You may have to chew some of it over. Or I'm really loving a book I'm reading. I'm devouring it. Metaphors, all. We know what we mean. Or we relate to time as if it were money. We don't, we we, we spend time, we waste time, we need to budget our time. We don't just talk about time these ways, we experience time like this. I wasted an hour doing a crossword puzzle last night. Or working on that project was really a good investment of my time. And this is important because it helps us create a way to experience and structure what is the not yet. The no longer is behind us, the not yet is in front of us, and we're in the space in between. And, and because of the overwhelming data that is coming from us from the discipline of evolutionary cosmology, we know for sure that what we thought was out there as a reality was just the way we sought to make sense of things at the time, or I put that a better way, I hope. We can look back now and look at the time of Galileo and Copernicus and can see, oh, well, They didn't know what was really going on. Now, we know that the sun does not revolve around the earth. We know that planets orbit around the sun, and the solar system is moving, and the solar system is moving. Not through space, because that defines space as a thing that's stationary. So We're just moving. We know all that now. Think about it. In 400 years, people are going to look back on our time and think about us just like we think about them because we will know more out there. So whatever we say right now about anything is provisional. Now that makes some people feel uncomfortable because people like things to hold on to you know someone asked me do you believe in God I think what they mean is do you believe that God exists and my answer is no God does not exist like this glass exists or a tree exists or a rock exists but yes God exists and is just as real as love, as good, as evil because these things exist in my human experience. Now Jesus had this experience and he wanted to share it with people. And he did so mostly by how he behaved or misbehaved according to the rules and then by the stories he told and by the words used about God. And Jesus' experience of God was like a loving father and at the same time God should not because God cannot be named. Both at the same time. So our experience of love, time, good, evil compassion are not out there. They're here. Our experience of God is to be here too. So what does it mean and how can we live into the same experience that Jesus was conveying when he said, when you pray, say, Abba. Now, I'm growing in my belief that what we believe about God, whatever we mean by that word, influences how we live our daily lives. If we believe that God is a big magician out there in the sky off somewhere remote, then we will live accordingly. And when we get in a gym or need a parking space, we will ask God to help us out. But if we believe that God is an experience within and that we are within, then our lives will be ordered differently. If I, like Jacob and Esau, can see the God in you, then I will treat you differently. Ultimately, our religion, no matter what we say we believe or what we group we blame, claim to belong to, is reflected in how we behave, how we behave with each other, how we treat each other, how we treat other others out there. Now, everybody in here has a different experience of religion because each of us is different. And um, you're going to hate this, but it's true. Um, I learned this from George Doherty in in the 60s, who was my teacher that I love so much. George, one of the things that George taught me many, many things, but one of the things that George most importantly taught me was that everybody is always right. Now, we hate that, but it's true. Each of us thinks that he or she is right about the opinions that we currently hold. Each of us is also doing the best we can at the moment, given the level of energy and awareness and all that other stuff. The problem is that we get to thinking that the truth that we think is the truth and that we hold is the truth that ought to be for everybody. I love this cartoon that was recently in the New Yorker. And in this corner, still undefeated, Frank's long-held beliefs. (laughs) All divisions and divisiveness in the world come from right here. I got the truth. You don't. So that's the second thing that George taught me, or not the second, but one other thing, is that we get in such a big, big, big pot of trouble when we start thinking, you know, I don't, I'm not feeling good right now for whatever reason, but I will feel better when I can make you be different. Hmm? If I can just make you fill in the blank, take out the garbage, lose weight, stop smoking, whatever it is, then I'll be okay. That's the classic definition of codependency. My well-being is dependent on how you behave. We create our experience of reality by the words we speak. And by the words that we hear, we're bombarded all the time in our culture with all sorts of words. And the cognitive scientists say that we can only take in a small amount of it, but it all comes in. It affects our minds and our bodies, all of it. And now when we come to religion, gee, religion has a language category all of its own. We hear recite, sing words in our worship service that we do not hear say in any other aspect of our lives. Okay? So I decided for the third time around in teaching in Ordinary Life that I was going to do this riff on the Lord's Prayer. And it occurred to me this week that unless you pray the rosary every day, either the Catholic Orthodox Anglican rosary, or have some spiritual practice that involves it, you never hear the Lord's Prayer unless you go to a Christian worship service of some kind. We say it every Sunday in the worship service here. But you go to, every funeral has it. Most weddings have it. But otherwise, you never hear it. It never, It's never there, but it's there, you know. At, at, at funerals and weddings, when we do the Lord's Prayer, we always print it in this order of service so that people who don't come to church on a regular basis don't feel embarrassed by having to look at each other to see what is that. But I just want to show you that in church, we get words that we don't have in any other part of our lives. In the worship service just today at St. Paul's, the opening hymn, "Sing praise to God who reigns above, the God of our salvation, with healing balm my soul is filled. God is above. What's salvation mean? I'll give you a quarter if you can tell me what healing balm is. (laughs) But we sing it. In the colic we prayed today, that we be not anxious about earthly things, but love things heavenly. How do you do that? But we say it. The first lesson is from the Hebrew scripture about the time that the children of Israel complained that there was nothing to eat, but God fed them with manna from heaven. Got another quarter, if you can define manna. You don't want to hear what I'm about to say, but Jeff McDonald, our senior pastor, told us in the sacristy today that just this week he read in a commentary that manna was insect poop. (laughs) He said it, not me. In Hebrew, the word manna literally means worthless food. (laughs) So in the second letter, second lesson today, in Paul, Paul says, to me, living is Christ. What does that mean? Dying is gain. What does that mean for a 21st century human being? What does that mean? But we say it. And, of course, in the Apostles' Creed, we affirm that Jesus ascended into heaven again and sits at the right hand of God, which is a mistranslation of the original creed. In the original creed, Christ sits on the right hand of God, which means that God is (laughs) left-handed. You get that, right? We leave out the phrase in the Methodist church, descended into hell, which I think is the most important part of the phrase in the Apostles' Creed. But we leave that out every Sunday. That was John Wesley's idea. In the doxology, we affirm once again, praise God above ye heavenly host. Where outside of such a ritual do you ever hear language like that? Now, I am not dissing the liturgy. But I do wonder if somebody is really hungry and they want to be fed spiritual food and they come to our worship service, are they fed? Or is this just mumbo-jumbo? If you've been coming for 20 years and you've got a group of friends around you, then it becomes kind of a tradition and a bonding with community. But... If you're brand new and you are hurting and looking for something that makes sense of your life and God is up there, not here, and there's a bomb that will heal you, where do you go? I'm not in the chancel every Sunday, but um, the Sundays that I am, I I can can look out and see what's going on um, with the people in the congregation today the choir sat in the, the in the um, balcony in the for the eight thirty service I, I don't know whether they will 11 o'clock the choral scholars saying our choral scholars are so good our choir is so good but the choral scholars are so good today they were just outstanding and um, you can tell when you sit in i can, like i can tell if you're here or not and i'm not being critical but you know where you are <laughs> whether you're here or not and in the congregation, you'd tell I could see the people in the choir today who were reading their Kindles. <laughs> yeah. People in the congregation who are working their crosswords on their phone, doing various things. I heard a woman interviewed by Bill Moyers about the power of singing in the African-American church some time ago. And, and she said, there's some people who come to church and they try their best to leave the way they came. <laughs> right. It's just like Carl Almarty used to say, nobody goes to church to be who they are. They go to church to be who they hope to God they look like they are. Hmm? Now I'm not gonna be teaching next Sunday because Suzanne The Bill will be here and then the following Sunday I'm coming back to continue basing these teachings on my current response to the Lord's Prayer. But I think we might camp here for a while about language. Because I, I, I think that unless we learn to hear and speak in metaphor, that's why I call the class Metaphor Be With You. I think it's pretty clever, but I <laughs> didn't get the response I wanted it. We need, we need some instruction about our religious language. Um, and, and so I, I just want to say a few words about the elements of what I think is the language of meaning. Now, I would have said the language of faith maybe three or four years ago, but I, I, it's not faith. It's a language of... How do we, how do we con- ex- convey meaning to other people who want to create a shared value system so that in the values that we share of hopefully love and honesty truth and freedom we can make a difference in the world how do we do that language is how we experience and create reality And a religious language that we currently exposed to don't doesn't do that so how do we do language and, and the, the first thing I want to say about the elements of a language of meaning is that it requires a familiarity with metaphor. Our ancestors, going all the way back to when we first developed language, had experiences that they conveyed in fairly concrete ways. They made up stories using the symbol system of their time. Um, and in, in, their, in the religious tradition that they created, they conceived forces and energies beyond what they could see And they gave them names. Thor, Mars, Hercules. They took them from myths of all kinds to help them understand what was going on. It's easier to relate to somebody when you have a name for them. When you pray, say, Daddy. It's easier to have a name. Something new radical occurred among the people who became the Hebrews, the Jewish people. And they said, you can't represent God in any physical way. All the other cultures around them did that. The Egyptians did and others as well. And they said, God cannot be represented or contained or described in any object or word except. Here's another corner going out to who can claim it. The Jews were such geniuses of liturgical and religious language. In the beginning, God created male and female. Male and female, God created them in God's own image. You want to know what God looks like? Look at the person sitting next to you. That's genius. Don't name God. Don't create an image of God. God created you in God's image and likeness, which is another phrase we'll have to get into. So the people who wrote these stories, they weren't trying to prove scientific truths or make something factually true. They were telling a story about their experience. And, and, And they were not creating beliefs. They were using metaphors, and the metaphors that they used for their time no longer fit for us. In Jesus' time, there was a metaphor that I personally find repugnant now. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That made sense in Jewish theology and ritual. I find it offensive. But we sing about it, and we read about it. So the first depiction of God in the Hebrew scripture, actually it was written much later than Genesis 12 on. The first 11 chapters of Genesis now they say were written very early. God is pictured in a metaphorical way in the early chapters of Genesis as a brooding hen. I said this one time to my mother years ago when I preached a sermon on... um, feminine theology as a male. I had no right to do that, but I did anyway. And my mother uh, called me up and left a voicemail message, you know, when you had those on your machine. She said, William, God is not a chicken. (laughs) It's a metaphor. (laughs) God's a brooding hen over the creation, taking care, hovering. Moses had an encounter with God in, in, in the wilderness. And he said, I met a bush that was on fire. It didn't happen. It was his way of trying to express what could not be expressed. When the, when the Hebrews said, God delivered us from slavery in Egypt, they said they, that, he, that God did it. He carried us on wings as eagles. That's not a fact. That's a metaphor. So my point is that if we want our spiritual lives to be wholesome, healthy, to promote deeper understanding and and right action, then the metaphors we use to think about the spiritual are crucial. So we're obligated, I think, to return to the subject. At the moment, metaphor be with you. The second thing about the language of meaning is... um, that it's got to cur- connect with our current understanding of the physical world. Whatever that is, if we don't change when physics changes, we'll be dragged into the past. That's what happened to the church when Galileo and C- C- Copernicus came along and said, hey, the sun is the center of the thing, and the church said, nope, it's not. The earth is, more importantly, Italy is. <laughs> and, and, um, The church won for about 400 years. By the way, there's that kind of lag between when something changes in physics and something changes in the softer sciences. In physics, when things change, the hard sciences that are based on physics, that would be math, chemistry, architecture, things like that, they change pretty quickly. But the softer sciences, philosophy, psychology, theology, they, they lag behind. There's a lag here in, in that. So, the King James Version of the Bible was translated in 1611. The Revised Standard Version, which is called by many the Reval Substandard Perversion, <laughs> came out about 400 years later. And one of you in this class told me a couple weeks ago about your experience of getting a copy of the RSV and taking it to the church where you were going at the time, and people shunned you because you had this new translation. It happens the third thing about the language of meaning is it's got to be relational now this insight comes from Martin Luther I mean Martin Buber's I thou paradigm but um, we can take it from all sorts of places real language that matters is between you and me between I and thou not between its and we live in a fragmented functional society where the language is all about it and getting fixed I'm astounded at the number of pharmaceutical ads that are on commercial television. You need fixed, and this will do it. And fourth, the language of meaning must be of this world and not some other. Not up there, later, but right here, right now. Are you saved? That's a functional question. It's not a relational question. It's a question designed to put you in a box. You believe in Jesus. You believe in the Bible. All of those are functional questions. They're designed to categorize people. Are you hungry? Are you lonely? Do you need a hug? Those are relational questions. I'm going to town after this class today. That's a functional thing. I'm going home. That's a relational thing. Get it? There's a difference between the words that we use and how we create our experience of reality. I'm going to come back and elaborate on these later. I think they're so very important. So the story has it that Jesus went to his disciples one day. And they knew he went off for long periods of time. And he came back with these ideas that he shared with them. And you know, really life-changing ideas. One time he came back and he said, um, it's in my translation. He said, um, I've been off on a retreat. And I came to this conclusion. I'm a child of God. And so are you. And so is everybody else. And that's what I want us to take the message out there, to tell people that they're children of God. And if they can see that, that'll make them whole. That's the secret of the miracles in the New Testament, in my opinion. Is that Jesus saw past what people thought defined them to who they really were. And that gave them their experience of wholeness. So one time they came in and they said, hey, hey, we, we see you going off where you do. And Jesus said, I pray. And they said, would you teach us how? And he said, when you pray, use these words. O cosmic birther of all radiance and vibration, soften the ground of our being and carve out a space within us where your presence can abide. Fill us with your creativity so that we may be empowered to bear the fruit of your mission. Let each of our actions bear fruit in accordance with your desire. Endow us with the wisdom to produce and share what each being needs to grow and flourish. Untie the tangled threads of destiny that bind us as we release others from the entanglement of past mistakes Do not let us be seduced by that which would divert us from our true purpose, but illuminate the opportunities of the present moment. For you are the ground and the fruitful vision, the birth power and fulfillment, as all is gathered and made whole once again. Not in my lifetime, but someday I hope this is what we do in our liturgy. No matter where you go this week no matter what happens remember this you carry precious cargo so watch your step and suzanne stabil will see you here next sunday and for those of you who have tickets i'll see you saturday thank you